scripture passage for this morning is from the first letter of John, chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. Verses 16 through 18. Let us hear the words of God. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children... Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. The words of God. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, pray again that you would humble us. I pray, Heavenly Father, that what I do this morning would be to the putting forth of your word before your people. To show us, Heavenly Father, what it says, that that would not just be apprehended by our minds, Lord, or just fall upon our ears, that would reach our hearts. And I ask, Heavenly Father, that it would reach this heart. Your word, sharper than a two-edged sword. Heavenly Father, and I ask that we would be so humble before you that we would desire that hurt that it gives us, knowing, Heavenly Father, that it is for our gain, and it is for your glory, Heavenly Father, that we be rebuked, that we be brought short when we need to be, Lord, that our sin would be open before us, Heavenly Father, that we might see ever more our need of Christ, we might be strengthened through the Holy Spirit to do the things that your word commands for the sake of your glory, for the sake of your name, your renown upon men. May you be glorified. May you be magnified. I pray, Heavenly Father, this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I need first to explain why I'm starting in the middle of First John this morning. Five years ago, before Pastor McReynolds came and began his service amongst us, I was preaching through the book of 1 John. By the end of June of that year, I'd reached the middle of the third chapter. There I stopped. I, I did one more topical sermon after that, but have not picked the book back up since then for preaching. Pastor McReynolds has asked me for some time now that I exhort you on a regular basis, say once a quarter, and so it seemed natural for me to begin where I left off, and that's what I'm doing this morning. <clears throat> However, what that means is for the, you here this morning, I'm beginning sort of in mid-sentence. And even for the few of you that were here back in 2003, you probably don't remember the details of the messages that I gave them. So since we're in the middle of the book, I want to give a brief introduction. How may we summarize the book of 1 John to this point? Why did he write this letter? First, let's keep in mind who it is that's writing this letter, who John is. He is an apostle. He is an eyewitness to the life of Christ. Yes, to his life, 
to his death, to his resurrection, and to his ascension. He is one commissioned by Jesus himself to bear a message. Remember that this John, many years before, had been called by Jesus along with his brother James. And they had left their fishing boat with their father Zebedee. Remember John as he spent those years with Jesus, walking with him, sent out by him with the others, receiving his teaching along with the other disciples. Remember that those two brothers, along with Peter, had been on the Mount of Transfiguration and had seen the unveiled glory of Christ, had witnessed in that way his divine nature. Remember all the things that John records for us in his gospel, such as the ones that I read a few minutes ago. Many teachings that are not found in the other three gospel accounts. He was the disciple for whom Jesus had special affection. The disciple whom Jesus loved. See him reclining next to Jesus when they were celebrating the Passover on the night that he was betrayed. John was there too at the crucifixion receiving special commands regarding Jesus' mother, Mary. A few mornings later, behold him in his foot race with Peter, running to the tomb after hearing the news of the empty tomb with Mary Magdalene. And he won that foot race, by the way. He saw Jesus during those days after his resurrection. On the occasions in the upper room, he saw Thomas's doubts removed. He saw him at the Sea of Galilee, and he saw Peter restored. He received the Great Commission. He received the command to be witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is that John, who is now writing as an old man. And what is he doing other than obediently giving that apostolic witness this proclamation of the gospel? And for what purpose? Well, he gives us his reasons clearly at the beginning of the book. He writes to these Christians so that they might have fellowship with him and so that their joy might be made complete or might be full. Reminds one, one of the words of Christ that we've read. For that joy to be full, he desires that their fellowship with the Holy God, indeed, their fellowship with God the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, their knowledge of God be unbroken. He desires nothing to be in the way. He desires to remove every hindrance. And so he exhorts them. He exhorts them with regard to what? He exhorts them with regard to the necessity of obedience to the commands of Christ, of God. He exhorts them regarding the duty of love to the brethren. He exhorts them against worldliness. And he exhorts them to a purity of doctrine on the simple but profound point that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one. This is the way Martin Lloyd-Jones summarizes this section. Roughly, the first two chapters of the book of 1 John. Others have expressed it as a series of tests, three or four, by which we may ask ourselves, are we truly Christians? A test of righteousness, obedience, a social test of love for the brethren, a test of not loving the world, and a doctrinal test. 
All of this to uphold the fellowship they have with God, the knowledge of the God of God that they possess, so that they might be more conscious of it, more assured of it. Then John starts appears to start repeating himself, only he isn't. The book of John of First John has been disca- described as a kind of spiral, with themes repeating as one circles back around. And that's a good way of analyzing the structure of the book, but I'd like to suggest a different image to you, one that may make our joy more full, one that may put before us the value of this book. Think of it as a multifaceted jewel, and one is examining the different facets. Toward the end of the second chapter, we reach the next circle of the spiral, or the next facet of this jewel that we're looking at. That is, that their joy be made full in their possession of eternal life. In their abiding in Christ. It is here, in the first verse of chapter 3, that John proclaims these familiar words to us. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. And such we are. And John, ever desiring that their joy be undiminished, again desires that nothing hinder that sense of adoption, that abiding, that possession of eternal life. And so, what does he do? He again exhorts them regarding those familiar things that he's exhorted them before. Righteousness. Love for the brethren, a forsaking of worldliness, a need for right doctrine, right beliefs. And so in the middle of the third chapter, we find ourselves on the second circle of the spiral, second facet of the jewel, again looking at the love that we are commanded to have for the brethren. When the Apostle John had first touched on this subject in the first chapter of the book, He had been considering their fellowship with God, their knowledge of God, the God who is light and in whom there is no darkness. In that context, John had written these words. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. It's 1 John 2, verses 9 through 11. The second time John deals with this matter, in the verses immediately before the verses for this morning, he says this, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother, and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Verses 11 through 15. 
The picture has changed. Before, the contrast was between light and darkness. Here, the contrast is between life and death. That's fitting because the first occasion John was teaching them from the the context of their knowledge of the holy God. Here, he's teaching them in the context of their possession of eternal life. So we come to the passage for this morning. Remember that fellowship and joy are the reasons why John is writing. He wants us to know that we are the children of God. He wants to remove every hindrance. And so he continues with these words, the ones that we'll consider this morning. I repeat them now. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Let us take this one verse at a time. Love of the brethren has been put before us several times by the Apostle John. Love your brother and so abide in the light. We should love one another. We love the brethren and by that we know we have passed out of death into life. Very well. Well, what does this love look like? How do we define it? What is love? And thank God that the Holy Spirit inspired John to write the verse that is before us. For he does not leave us with some sort of undefined love, something squishy or sentimental, but he fleshes it out for us here. And I say again, thank the Lord for it. For otherwise, we would fill that word love with all our own definitions or those that the world has given us, and we would go far astray. Whatever definitions of love the world seeks to give us, and many of those are simply particular forms of hatred. Whatever ways the world would like to misappropriate the, the word love, we know love by this. Or in the King James, hereby we perceive the love of God. Here it is. He laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for us. This is an expression that's peculiar to John. One of those evidences we have that the apostle who wrote the gospel is the same one who wrote this letter. From the gospel of John, we are taught by Jesus that he is the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do? He lays down his life for the sheep. No one takes his life from him, but rather he lays it down on his own initiative. He does what Peter thought he could do, lay down his life for another, but Peter couldn't do it. It is the supreme expression of love, as I read a few minutes ago. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. Christ has done this very thing, this setting aside of life. It is a divesting. Like he set aside his outer garments to wash their feet, He set aside his life to atone for their sins. And his humiliation, as Paul tells us in Philippians 2, had begun long before that. Further down, further down, 
laying aside, further laying aside, till he lays aside his life that he might take it again. So, we are told to love our brothers. We are then told that we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And now you can see where it's going. The conclusion is obvious. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. We should love as God has taught us, and that means the setting aside of our lives. In this respect, Jesus in his death is an example to us. Those of us, There are those who've reduced the death of Jesus merely to an example, something for us to follow and nothing more. But John has already taught us that that is not so. What Jesus accomplished on the cross is clearly proclaimed by John, 1 John 2, verse 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. For this reason, we reject the teaching of those who reduce the crucifixion of Christ to a mere example. But, brothers, we dare not say out of reaction against that that it isn't an example. His death is more than an example, but please let us never make it less than an example. Jesus is pleased to give us examples which we are to follow. The foot washing on the day before his crucifixion being one that leaps to mind immediately, and it too required a setting aside of the outer garments. His death too is something by which we benefit immeasurably and eternally. And if that were not enough, it is also in God's perfect poetry an example for us to follow. Think about what John has put, said just before this, the example of hatred that he gives us in Cain. Cain, out of hatred, out of jealousy for Abel's righteousness, murdered Abel, his own brother. But Jesus lays down his life for his brothers. One takes what is not his to take to the harm of that person, the harm and violence against that person. Jesus gives what is his to the benefit of those who will be his brothers. One whose boastful pride of life has been offended gives death. The other in deepening humility and humiliation gives life and life in abundance. Could the contrast be any starker, brothers? Whom do you wish to be like, Cain or Jesus? So look around the room this morning. Look at your natural families. They are here with you, spouse, child, parent. But look at those two of your brothers and sisters, not by natural birth, but by the second birth. These blood brothers in Christ. Think of our Christian brothers you know, near and far. Do we think of them as those we are willing to die for? Does that thought cross our mind? Are we prepared for that? It was common in the early church, this literal divesting of life. Stephen died. Did he lay down his life for his brethren? Had they had no benefit from him? 
Was, was he condemned for serving at tables? No, because of his because of the word that he preached. And were there not those who benefited because of the word that he preached? Did not Paul benefit from his dying prayer for forgiveness of the foes? Other examples. Years later, did not a student of the apostle John Polycarp die rather than renounce his faith? Were not others strengthened because of that? Centuries later, were there not those who died so that we could have the word of God in our own tongue? And today, are there not those whose lives are being laid aside? Missionaries who are slaughtered, those who are persecuted in wicked lands. Lord, I cling to this life far too strongly, far too tight a grip I have. And it's wretched. I am, and I suspect we are really far too often like that man in the book of Ruth, man that doesn't have a name, who out of fear of losing his family name will not marry Ruth and raise up son, sons in a dead man's name. And in the end, well, what's his name? We don't know it. He lost his name. Boaz, who is willing to lose his name, gains it. You know his name, don't you? Is it really so hard for us to believe Jesus when he says that he who saves his life will lose it? And he who loses his life for his sake will find it. Hath he not said, and do we not see it in his example, he lays down his life that he may take it again? Do we not see the infinite benefit the imperishable riches of Christ and lay aside or sell all that we have and follow him. This divesting of life will not come naturally to us. It might have been easier at a time, earlier time, when examples of this were lifted up before us. Say for patriotic reasons, when examples were put before us, such as the soldier who jumps on the grenade to protect his fellow soldiers. But we're rarely taught that nowadays. Such virtues are largely despised, oftentimes held to be hypocrisies. Instead, we are taught to grab our lives and let nothing deny our lives as we want to live them. I got a letter yesterday advertising a product. And on, on it, it said, it's all about you. I don't know if I want a product like that. That's a small example. But one of the supreme examples of this is abortion. We have had 35 years of legalized abortion. And do not think that in that polluted soil, fruitful plants of love will grow. We've been allowed to murder. We've given approval to Cain. And so loving our brethren as we should will be hard for us. The world will offer us less help than it did 50, 100 years ago when there was more leaven. Things are growing cold. We may never cross the line and take the lives of our children as Cain took that of his brother, but we can certainly not have the mind of Christ, that mind that was in Jesus Christ that led him to lay down his life for us. I see that in myself. And I wish 
it were true that I was the only one here that could make that confession. But I fear I'm not alone. We are taught everywhere teachings that will work with fierceness against that sort of love. These are things that affirm us, things that flatter us, things that tell us what our rights are, things that put the word my in front of nearly everything, that play things that place us more and more in the center of everything. We breathe this stuff. Divesting ourselves of life will not be easy. It would help us. John goes on to say this. Verse 17. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? This is an argument from the greater to the lesser. We should lay down our lives for the brethren. That being so, how much more true is it the case that we should set aside the lesser thing, the smaller thing, divest ourselves of the world's goods when a brother is in need? you can invest the ten talents, why not invest the one? I myself am so glad that this verse is here. Because if the previous verse pulls me up short, in a certain way, this verse pulls me up even shorter. How is that? While it is true that there have always been those who have been asked to lay down their lives for their brethren, it is not the case that every Christian will be asked to do so. You may not have the opportunity to do so. You may die peacefully in your own bed. And that death of you, his saint, will be precious in God's eyes. Indeed, not every Christian is asked to sell all he has and give to the poor, as the rich young ruler was. But... Every Christian, save those who are converted on their deathbeds, will have the opportunity to see a brother in need and have the choice before him. Close your heart or open it. And that is a helpful thing to be told because we might easily imagine ourselves doing the grand heroic thing of laying down our lives for another. Give me that grand battle. One death to die... And then eternity with God. I'll die. I'll die well and nobly. I'll parrot Jesus' words. I'll parrot Stephen's words. I'll pray for forgiveness for those foes of mine. That, that heroic grand thing, I can surely do that. But that a thousand little deaths, a daily divesting, A daily relinquishing, knowing that there's only going to be more relinquishing, more divesting after that, day after day, minute after minute, little by little, until the Lord returns or takes us. Lord, that's a harder thing in some respects. I would have invested the ten talents, but the one, is it worth the trouble? Why not bury it? And of course, when you think that way, you realize that you're really only fooling yourself. When you imagine that you'd lay down your lives for the brethren. As C.S. Lewis points out someplace, I don't remember where, it is easy for those of us with good, active imaginations to think we have virtues that we don't have. 
when I hear the call of, brother, can you spare a dime? And I feel that tightness. I feel that clutching, that hellish holding on. Do I really have any good reason for thinking that I would relinquish my life easily? No. In this simple verse, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? In this simple verse, I say God's light reveals the deceptiveness of our hearts. His severe light, his most merciful and tender light. Think, dear brothers, of Peter. Peter had said that he would go to prison or even lay down his life for Christ. He had even, with his fellow disciples around him, had the gall to say that even though all may fall away, yet he would not. This Mark records. We know how few the hours were that passed before he denied Christ three times. I count Peter as a fellow Christian of strong imagination, like C.S. Lewis, like myself, and perhaps some of you. Good imaginations, self-deceiving, and deceived. As I said, this is an argument from the greater to the lesser, from the example of laying aside life to that of laying aside the world's goods. But it is also a kind of the former. It is a kind of death. It is a dying to something, and that sort of dying will be asked of every Christian. It is asked of you, it is asked of me. And if you are Christ's, you will already have done this thing in some measure. This verse may show you how much of the road is still in front of you, but if you are Christ's, you will have done this thing even if you haven't noticed it. You will have given yourself away in ways that you could not have imagined at the start of the journey. The relinquishing of the world's goods, if we think that mainly indicates money and possessions, that's not an exhaustive list of the ways in which we may be asked in God's providential ordering of our lives to give ourselves. Time, talents, priorities, health, all manner of things may be asked of us. This, the giving of a dime or more, is given as an example, one of a large class of things, like the visiting of the widow and the orphan in their distress, is given in the book of James to represent all that we do for the brethren out of love if we have pure and undefiled religion. Let me give another, which is appropriate to this day as well. The bringing up of children. Let's be honest. Our children demand a lot of us. We know this, and we know that it is among the reasons, it's not the only one, but it is one, why abortion has been favored as a right in our country and in many other countries around the world. Their carrying and the births that follow are hard on a woman's body. Uncomfortable, tiring, and ending in painful travail We call it labor. Then, after that, sleep is lost. Both the mothers and the fathers, if the father's doing what he's supposed to be doing. And the time awake is taxed. Priorities are shifted, and yes, health is sacrificed. 
Out the window go the hours at the gym if we're doing what we should be doing. Just how much I demanded of my parents when I was little, I only learned when I myself became a parent. And I've grown in thankfulness ever since. I've seen the scope of what they did. What is this other than a dying to self? One that many non-believers have managed. But if we can't do that, we're like those who won't provide for their own. And on whom Paul passes this judgment, that one has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. To stand against abortion in our personal day-to-day walk, we must be those who see as beautiful those sure marks of the laying aside of one's goods, be it time or health or priorities, for the sake of the children that God has entrusted us with. The scars thus received, be they incisions or stretch marks or dark circles granted by many sleepless nights, should remind us of the Savior's wounds. We should see them as stirring to behold and we should be willing to bear them. And our bodies will wear out anyway, you know. Our health will fail. It will be taken from us. Give it willingly for the sake of your children or clutch it, but it will depart regardless. That phrase used here, world's goods, is well to the point for it reveals our foolishness if we are not willing to part with them because we will part with them at some point. They will not go with us. They will be left behind. They are perishable. Moth, rust, eat away at them. Thieves may break in and steal. They are not unsullied. They fade. Why clutch these things? As Christians, then, we must be willing to follow the example of Jesus and lay down our lives for the brethren and part with lesser things as well. And all of that makes this a very unpleasant sermon to deliver. Because I can imagine each one of you having good reason for thinking me a hypocrite in preaching this sermon. There's a remedy for that. Rebuke me. Assuming this sermon hasn't done that already. But each of us, myself included, must labor first and foremost to apply the apostles' words to ourselves rather than others. I fear I'm not alone in failing to show forth the Savior's love as I ought to. Or else, why did John go further and write the third verse that we're considering today? Verse 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. John is saying here what other writers in the New Testament say elsewhere. Perhaps the shortest is the expression from Paul, Romans 12, verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Paul, in his first letter to Timothy, writes these words, 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. James perhaps spends the most time on this on a related point in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. 
where he says this. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. James is here concerned with the question of faith and works, but he poses the question in such a way that he clearly thinks that love, that charity, would necessarily come with faith. Love and its actions are the necessary outworkings of a true and vital faith. So the Apostle John desires our love not to be hypocritical. And so he says, little children, let us love not let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. John returns to his fatherly, affectionate way of addressing his readers, little children. He has spoken to this, them like this before, when he's written them that they would not sin. Also, when exhorting them to abide in Christ, to have assurance when he returns, do not think this is a disparaging term little children and proudly dislike being addressed as such. Why? He who enters the kingdom must enter as one of these little ones. The Apostle John is as a father whose heart is turned to his children. After such an affectionate address, he implores them not to love with word or with tongue, but indeed in truth. The instruction here is simple. Let us first focus on the word deed. John desires our love to issue forth in actions. Our affections, if they be real, should not be something just theoretical, but show itself in the things that we do. Our love should be fleshed out in deeds. Surely what we've been told in the two preceding verses make that clear. The laying aside of our lives or of our goods is a clear action. He doesn't want this to be all talk. Now, let us be clear on what John doesn't mean here. Many people might point to a passage like this and say, you can see that it doesn't matter what we say. It matters only what we do. No, it matters greatly what we say. I will mention here only that we will be judged for every careless word spoken. The whole problem here is not that words have been spoken, but the words that have been said are not in harmony with what's been done. One thing is said, quite another is done. Should we love with words? Should we love with words? Husbands, what does your experience tell you regarding your wives? How well will it go with you if you never tell her you love her? On the other hand, how pleasing is it to her for you to tell her that you love her when your actions clearly betray that your heart is far away? So too in the scriptures. Think of how Paul expresses his affection for those to whom he is writing by confessing to them his thankfulness to God for their faith and the prayers he makes on their behalves. Or closer at hand, think of the Apostle John in this very verse. 
How does he address them? He addresses them affectionately as little children. Is he disobeying his own counsel in the same verse? No. In both of these cases, each apostle is giving expression to his love for those to whom he's writing in words. But those words are in harmony with his actions and with his true affections. In other words, with the truth of the matter. Hence, the words are genuine. The love is genuine. And this John expresses in that final word, truth. John is not against words. He's using quite a few of them. He's writing to these people. He's written that he desires fellowship with them. No, he wants the words, if they be spoken, to be in harmony with the actions. And he wants them to be true. How genuine a love is, how true it is, will oftentimes show itself in the long term. For example, when Paul doesn't visit a church for a while, there naturally arise those who do what? They question his integrity. And while Paul had good reasons for being absent, there is a lesson for that in us. And that we can't love if we carefully maintain our distance. That's certainly one way to avoid seeing a brother in need, just to stay away from him. But we shouldn't think that that will excuse us. God knows our hearts. He knows the reason for our absence, the reasons we are keeping our distance. Let us not forsake the gathering of ourselves together, as is the habit of some. And if it's a habit, likely a habit with a bad reason behind it. Let me give you another example, a personal one, one that I've mentioned to Pastor Randy on more than one occasion. I do not like conflict. I try to avoid it at all costs. Some costs are not worth it. Not because they, not worth it because they betray that I do not love enough that other person. There have been occasions where something desperately needed to be said. An exhortation needed to be made, a rebuke perhaps. But I desired so much to avoid the conflict that those words never got spoken. The real concrete action of speech never came. It might look like a forbearing love in the short term. And my self-deceptive heart would convince me of it. But in the long term, it has always ended painfully. And usually with the loss of the thing that I was trying to keep. I wouldn't lay aside that friendship for the sake of the good of that person. And so in the process of time, with inexorable gospel logic, the friendship was taken from me. Save your life and you will lose it. Lose it and you will find it. Save that friendship and you will lose it. And why? Because it wasn't the friendship that I was interested in. But absence of conflict. That's where my heart was. I didn't have the good of that person in mind, but really my own untroubled state of mind. My affection wasn't genuine, despite the fact that it looked nice. In the long term, it was shown to be hypocritical by God's holy light. I thank God for better examples of genuine love than I can see oftentimes in myself. I think of Paul, for example, who perceives amongst the church at Thessalonica those 
who are busybodies, refusing to work, and lead quiet lives. And his prescription for them is this. If you do not work, you shall not eat. Now, can you imagine what the response was of some of those who were guilty of that sin? Do you think they all uniformly loved Paul for it? Immediately had hearts bursting full of thanksgiving that Paul... bursting full of thanksgiving for that kind of rebuke together with that kind of prescribed action? Do you think so? But the Apostle Paul was willing willing to risk animosity. He was willing to lay aside absence of conflict for the good of those people. How genuine his love was, how much in truth it was, was shown by him laying aside the lesser things of a shallow peace for the good of those people. Here was a case where the facts of the matter meant that the mere sparing of a dime wasn't what love demanded. The dime would have been easy. The dime would have been easy compared to risking hatred on the parts of those sinning. Hatred, backbiting, insults. Money given in charity would have been easier because it would have been, in essence, money paid to avoid a conflict. Paul doesn't do this, and let us thank the Lord for his work in Paul's heart so that he doesn't. There are those of us who have not said what needs to be said regarding abortion because we desire to avoid conflict in just this way. We are not willing to lay aside reputation or a shallow peace. We don't want to be seen as fanatical. We don't want to be seen as too extreme. And so we're silent, do little or nothing, despite the fact that we know God's wrath against this evil. This is not love. Meanwhile, there are those, to give you one example that's not seen much in the public eye, Examples that I've heard of, of those who've personally written to those involved in the court decisions, telling them of God's hatred for the wickedness that they have set down in precedent, and telling them of their need for repentance. I can imagine the response. I fully suspect that those saints are on a list someplace of potential clinic bombers. They have been willing to lay aside reputation in the hopes that their words might be used of God to turn hearts. I thank God for examples such as these. I realize that case isn't entirely apropos to our text this morning because it deals specifically with loving the brethren, not the love that we're to show those outside the church. But I mention it because of the day, because it is an illustration of what we may need to lay aside and how if we are to love our brethren in deed and truth. Love is more than the mere absence of hatred, much in the way that a shalom peace is more than the absence, the mere absence of war. Our love should be genuine, should be in truth. It should issue forth in deeds, whether those deeds be the laying aside of reputation, time, resources, health, or life itself. Who is equal to this task? Thank God for Jesus Christ, through whom we can do all things. Let us go to the Lord in prayer.
Heavenly Father, Jesus told us that his yoke was easy and his burden was light. And if it seems heavy to us, Heavenly Father, if it feels like it is grinding us to the ground, the fault lies in us. For we have been granted, Lord, the Holy Spirit. That same Holy Spirit by which Christ was raised from the dead. And is that Holy Spirit not God? Is he not too almighty? Is he not that spirit of Christ proceeding from the Father, from the Son, to whom we can do all things? Paul was able to endure much, or he was able to endure lack because of the strength that you gave him, Lord. May we do likewise. I pray, Heavenly Father, that the putting of these verses before us has shown us how we are to show forth the love of Christ to the world by the love that we have one for another. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would do that work in our hearts. Bless us. Keep us. May we not look at this glass and then turn away forgetting what we have looked at, Lord. Be merciful to us long-suffering and forbearing God. I pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, with appreciation of our sins. Amen.